And all right, we have check marks. People are starting to file in. Okay. Here we go. Let me uh, let me roll the introduction, and uh, we'll get things underway. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. Are you thinking of growing your business or beginning a journey into entrepreneurship? Take a shortcut to success by buying an existing and profitable business the right way. Visit businessbuyeradvantage.com and learn more about my online training, group coaching, and consulting services designed to help you win. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. I've got a great guest here today. Today we're going to be talking about loan brokers and we're also going to be talking about uh, SBA loan brokers in particular. Um, while we get things underway though, I want to remind everyone who's watching or people who tune in after and watch the replay that uh, it is the, the holiday time of year and every year at this time I always do this special uh, series of recordings, Heather. They're called holiday chat calls. Yeah. And what happens is I invite people from my email list to sign up for regular consulting calls uh, at a substantially discounted rate. So nice. instead of a few hundred dollars, only 79. Uh, but the important thing is these are paid consulting calls that people want to do to have a conversation with me about buying, selling, financing, or managing a small business but they agreed for them to be released. And so they're oh. recorded. And over the course of the holidays, starting on the 23rd this year, um, people on my email list will get a new one every day. But dear listener, viewer, um, in order for you to get them, you actually have to be on the email list. And so that's at uh, davidcbarnettlist.com is where you can sign up for that. And for people who are not on my email list, um, I will release them publicly, but not until next summer. And so it, it really it comes down to how quickly people want to tune into this stuff. Uh, I accidentally forgot to uh, set the limit this year. So instead of 12 holiday chat calls for the 12 days of Christmas, there's going to be 13. But, <laughs> you know, it, the more the merrier, right? Right. I Absolutely. <laughs> all right. So now, now that I've got all the, the prom promo stuff out of the way, um, Heather, let's, let's talk about this. First, though... For people who don't know you already, uh, and, and you're very active online, uh, can you give people a quick rundown of uh, your own career and history and, and, uh, and what brings you to uh, your current business that you have today? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thank you for having me. And uh, yes, I, I've had a long career as a banker, so now I call myself a recovering banker. Uh, I was uh, I was in banking for over 30 years, and for most of that time, I actually managed SBA departments for banks of all sizes, from very small community banks all the way up to Citibank. So wow. uh, I did that for a long, long time, and then for uh, the last six years, or about six and a half years ago, I uh, went to Live Oak Bank, which was the number one SBA lender, to focus on acquisition loans. So um, we had a, we created a search fund vertical there and grew it mm -hmm. and grew it and grew it. So I uh, had, had a great time uh, doing that and then uh, wanted to be an entrepreneur myself. So finally got to realize that dream 
by starting Viso Business Capital, which is an SBA loan brokerage specifically focused on helping people who are buying businesses, because that is where most of my experience is. I, I spent the last 12 years, even some of that as a manager of SBA departments, focusing just on acquisition SBA loans instead and kind of took out all the other, you know, SBA real estate. I, I can still okay. do those, but I focused exclusively on acquisitions for 12 years. Okay. And so uh, I, I, I have a, a, something to confess. I don't know if I ever told this to you before, but at, mm -hmm. at one point in my own background, I was also a small business finance broker. Uh, not SBA loans, but I was helping people with operating leases, capital leases, mm -hmm. factoring facilities, uh, business lines of credit, uh, term loans from uh, lenders here in Canada. And so I've got a little bit of a background in understanding of how this works. But for for you know people who, who don't know, can you explain what the difference is between a broker versus just calling up a banker and, and talking with a banker about a loan? Right. I, I think the best analogy is to, it, people are more familiar with insurance brokers. You call an insurance mm -hmm. broker because you want them to shop. The, maybe it's life insurance you need. They're going to shop all the different carriers and make sure they get you the right, the best rate and the best fit. Same thing is kind of true with loan brokerage. Uh, rather than representing one bank like I did for my whole career, if you came to me then, I had to. I could only say yes if my bank, this was their flavor of the week or, or the year or whatever it might be. As a broker, people come to me and I work with 30 different banks mm -hmm. and I track all their credit preferences and very nuanced credit preferences, things that other folks might not even know to ask. And first, I fit the deal to the right lenders. But I also coach people through putting the application together right, not approaching the bank too early, you know, before we kind of have our our uh, deal sort of baked. Um, so, and then, uh, I problem solve. And, and so I'm an extra set of eyes as the bank kind of proceeds through the final credit process and the closing process. Uh, they can, everyone can, can bring me back in if there's a problem and there's always a problem <laughs> with small okay. acquisitions. There's always something. So, so you mentioned there 30 different lenders. So mm -hmm. I'd like to, I'd like to peel that back a little bit yeah. um, because a lot of people, especially if they're new in this space or they're just learning about how uh, someone in the United States could use a, a SBA loan to buy a business, um, they think SBA loan. So there's an SBA program. So that means there's just mm -hmm. one product, right? But, but in reality, of course, uh, as, as I'm sure we're going to get into, uh, not every lender sort of implements or applies that program in the same kind of way. Can you talk to us a little bit about why there are variations or differences between different lenders and what uh, they're interested in or what they might agree to do as far as a loan? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right. Most people think, well, there's a set of rules, so they just all have the same thing to offer. But that's not the case. Um, there is a set of rules and they do all have to live by those. But after the rules are, you know, we check those boxes off, uh, then they, they become very different. Each bank, one to the next out of credit appetite. And that's mm -hmm. the way I look at it. You know, the, what do they like? What sort of assets do they want on their balance sheet? Um, some of it comes down to, you know, big things like DSCR. There's a difference between the minimum DSCR that certain banks will will want. But there's also differences in loan size. Um, some banks, you know, once you get too big and you don't have a lot of real estate collateral, they don't do those. Right. Um, other banks don't like investors in the cap table. They want all the, uh, the equity coming from certain, you know, the, the personal guarantors. Um, it goes on from there, you know, licensing. If there's a business that requires licensing and there's a transfer of that license, 
totally different how many banks will look at that situation. So lots of nuances in these deals. And you have to really learn a lot about the deal and the buyer before you can decide where to go, uh, which bank to go to. And I think that's one of the ways we help people. It, an individual borrower, buyer doesn't know, and they end up wasting a lot of time knocking on the wrong doors, talking to banks that, you know, they got to know during their search, but then they find out, you know, it takes them a few weeks to find out that that bank doesn't really like what they're, what they're requesting. And so, and I'm sure this maybe varies from year to year, but can you tell me how many different banks are sort of signed up to be able to do SBA loans? Hundreds. Okay. <laughs> I don't know exactly how many, but there is a, a published top 100 SBA lenders. And you can see as it kind of, you get down to 100, they're not doing a whole lot. Um, maybe, you know, 20 or 30 million, those, those. Uh, and after that, there's still hundreds more, but they only dabble in it. So when you look at that list, you kind of only want to be dealing with at least bit lenders that are in the top 50 uh, of that. Well, and, and, and you did mention something earlier about how you're focusing on uh, small business acquisition financing. I'm sure that there are probably some of those banks that do a lot of SBA loans, but maybe it's not in that space. They're financing real estate or equipment ex expansion loans, that kind of stuff. Right. Not specifically what we're talking about here today. Exactly. And that I mean, that is what I did at Live Oak Bank was really take a bank and become very, very good at this. Uh, other banks then wanted to jump in and copy, which I'm now very happy about because uh, now I have, you know, other banks to go to uh, for these. But you're right out of that top 100, uh, probably only about 30 ish. The ones that I'm working with are really well versed and do enough acquisition lending to be, you know, the right place to go with those types of deals. Okay. So, um, you know, for a lot of people who are a broker in, in a multitude of different industries, one of the things that that a broker does is they kind of create a marketplace, right? And so you're on here today talking with me, you, you're building your online presence, your email list, et cetera, because you want to have a lot of different business buyers approaching you. And so in turn, you can then represent that to these uh, lenders saying, hey, look, deal with me because I've got this this flow of, of business coming through here. And, and the whole idea about making that marketplace is to create competition. You, you mentioned that different banks have different flavors of what they're looking for. Do, do you have uh, sort of several banks that might be interested in, in trying to outbid each other for a certain kind of deal? Yes, definitely. So uh, that is one of our value propositions right there is that by representing a lot of value of volume or repeat mm. business to these lenders that we work with, we're able to use that lev to leverage better rates and better terms. So and better service. I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't realize that, you know, you can get ignored very easily as, a, as an individual <laughs> borrower in the, in the scheme of things. But uh, they don't tend to ignore us because uh, we would not bring them back more loans uh, if, if they right. weren't giving us good service. But it definitely does that in, in terms of rates and terms as well. So um, what usually happens is we boil it down to sort of the, the three lenders that will probably be the best fit for a particular deal. We'll get our borrower those three term sheets. And yeah, if the bank wants the deal, they're going to be sharpening their pencil, put their best foot forward on those term sheets uh, so that they can win the deal. Oh, great. Could you maybe, I mean, obviously not without saying names or anything, but can you tell us a story of a recent client perhaps that maybe had to navigate from one lender to another or how you were able to help them find the right the right solution? 
Yeah, let me think about a particular client. I mean, we we have a lot in closing right now. So my head is full of lots of different clients at the moment. Uh, being that it's almost the end of the year, this is uh, this is a very, very busy time. Um, but yeah, absolutely. There are, I'll take one that's kind of a new one right now. Um, it's a very nice deal, very strong borrower. Um, he has a, a background in investment banking, um, buying a, a, a nice business, but a business that struggled through COVID. So when a bank okay. looks at those numbers, they're still, still going to have to understand what happened there and how things have improved. Um, and this this particular borrower, what's key to him is closing by March 1st. That's the beginning of the busy season for this kind of somewhat seasonal business. Okay. And uh, he's been negotiating with the seller for quite some time. I've been in touch with them throughout uh, the months of negotiation. And that is a make or break date in this case. I know sometimes people say that, but that one really is in, in the circumstances of this case. So we're looking for a lender for this one where that's first and foremost, you have to be able to prioritize this loan to get it through and make sure that it can close in, in this case on March 1st. So that's a, a different dynamic. We're actually with that client, we talked about it, willing to pay more in terms of the spread on the interest rate so that we can achieve that necessary goal and be important to the bank, be important enough for them to prioritize it. So that's just kind of a twist on that on that scenario. It's not always a bidding war over price. Sometimes it's something else that's really important. And our job is to highlight that to the lenders and choose a lender that can deliver that whatever is most important to the client. Yeah. I I mean, throughout my own uh, consulting practice and working with different people who have been buying businesses uh, over the course of the years, I, I've had other clients who have ended up going going with a broker. So, I mean, I mean uh, you didn't invent this. Do you have any idea of how many different SBA loan brokers there might be out there? You know, I don't know how many. I know there there've always been there. I, I've yeah. been in this, you know, doing this for 30 years. But my history with loan brokers it was usually real estate transactions. Hmm. They were brokering real estate loans. And back when I was uh, you know, as a lender receiving packages from them, they tended to only get assignments that were tough, that were not easily placed, not easily approved. I think with acquisition lending, it opens a whole new possibility for a brokerage like mine in that most of our clients are very solid, strong mm. deals, uh, sophisticated borrowers, really, you know, good quality. It's not that they can't get approved. It's just that there are so many nuances to acquisition lending that it is they need the help in finding the right lender, the right fit. Well, and and my clients that I've worked with in the past that have ended up going to a broker, that's mm -hmm. typically it. It's usually that they've run, uh, you know, they, they've attempted a couple of different lenders and been told no for one reason or another. And then they'll find someone who's got some experience with uh, with brokering loans and lo and behold, end up being placed with a lender two states over some institution they never right. would have come across uh, in their own search. But that broker knew that that was the place that had the appetite and willingness to do the deal that they were trying to do. And so it, it really is a, this, uh, this matchmaking kind of function, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and although I do get assignments like that where they've sort of struck out and they come to me and I'm happy to, to take those on. Uh, I also my goal is to be the first call when you get assigned LOI, because why go through that? That's that's my value proposition is why do all that? Uh, even if you've got a good, strong deal, why, you only have 90 days from the signing of an LOI to the end of exclusivity in most cases. 
And, uh, you know, my thought is don't waste so much of that time with banks. Uh, let us cut through that for you, get you the term sheets and let you focus, you the buyer, on the diligence and the other, you know, the, and the relationship with the seller. Um, all those things that are really, really important um, because you can waste a lot of time, uh, you know, knocking on the wrong doors, so to speak, or even the right doors sometimes in presenting it wrong, you know, not knowing how to approach and how to present it to a lender. Well, and I, I think this last point you've just made, I think is really, is, is a really big one because, it, you know, and back when I was doing um, small business finance brokerage, um, I made relationships with bankers and here in Canada, it's a different kind of landscape. You know, there's just, we've got six big banks basically. Yeah. Um, and so I've made contact with all the people in, in my area who were the small business loan officers for those banks. And I, mm -hmm. I said to them, like, if you get a customer of yours and you can't help them, maybe I can with some alternative form of financing, leasing company or something like that. But what was interesting is um, probably about a third of the people they referred to me when I sat down with them and I looked at the deal they were trying to do, I realized that the problem wasn't the deal. The problem was that they were never able to articulate to the lender properly why it made sense and how their cash flow might improve and how they'd be able to service this debt. And so I would work with them and create a cash flow forecast and a bit of a business plan. And about a third of the time, I was able to bring them back to the institution that referred them to me yeah. and I was able to get the loan approved because it was properly packaged. And so, um, the packaging can be an, a critical part of this whole thing, can't it? Absolutely. And I love that story because I, I, I see that all the time where I, I, a bank just didn't understand it. Uh, and there is bank, there's like a bank language, you know, that we have mm -hmm. to, we have to translate from what our uh, borrower buyer is saying and observing and, and kind of not, it's not changing anything. It's just really speaking it in the banker's language and showing them the, the numbers that they need to see in order to get it through their committee. Uh, absolutely. So what I do, we use a, a wonderful data room system that, um, uh, you know, that that's the first step. When someone gets assigned LOI, we set up a data room. It's customized to every deal. So it's not just a template. If there's something in particular we want to make sure the lender sees or that's going to be kind of a hot button for lenders, it has its own folder, really clearly labeled. You can't miss it. It's going to be right there, uh, the things that they want to know. So we'll customize it. We'll get our borrower to put everything in. We've got our own templates that are set up in a way that bankers like. And then when it's ready or near ready, we have this bank readiness call. And we uh, go on screen like this and click through every folder and talk through and make sure that everything's right and that that I'm looking at it that one last time from a banker's perspective. Mm. What's going to jump out to them? Oh, we better add something here. We probably want to change that there. We fine tune it and then we're ready. Uh, and that's at the point at which we start going out to the banks and showing them the data room. It, it really changes things dramatically when we do that. Yeah, well, I mean, you're talking about being prepared, right? And and mm -hmm. uh, and using your own background and experience to help do that. Let, let's, you know, let, let me let me ask a question to kind of expand on that, uh, because you mentioned that you know a, a lot of brokers uh, get called upon when there's a troublesome file that someone's having a hard time getting financed. So when you meet a new a new prospective client that's looking to finance a transaction. What are you looking for? Are you only 
taking on this client when you think that it's a financeable deal? Uh, like, tell me about the sort of the hurdle that you might employ to make sure you're not, uh, you know, running with something that it can't be done. Right. And, and that's a really good point. Uh, I won't take on an assignment that I don't think can be done or, you know, just isn't going to fit anywhere. Uh, um, too much of an uphill battle, if you will. Uh, so how I do that is um, I, I first of all do a Zoom session every two weeks. So I invite everybody that wants to check it out, how we do things to come to the Zoom session and learn about that. In that Zoom session, I give them three templates every time. And uh, these are templates that I've developed over years and years and years. One of them is an M&A questionnaire, answer mm -hmm. all the questions we need to ask every time. One of them is a cash flow model, pretty simple, but you know, let's figure out what the sources and uses in cash flow looks like. And the third one is kind of my favorite because I created it. <laughs> it's called a non-financial scorecard where we take things that are not represented in the financial statements. We decide what the top 10 of those things are and we have the borrower rank them in terms of risk. And then okay. it creates a composite score. And that composite score sort of suggests price multiples range um, and DSCR range, you know, a high risk business, in other words, maybe a low price multiple, you know, that sounds good, but you know, probably needs to be a much higher DSCR yes. ratio. And the and the reverse. It's also just a great visual one pager. For banks to not get overly focused on just the financial ratios. Um, a lot of times we miss both good things and bad things by just being too immersed in the financial ratios. Um, there's a lot, you know, of other things. I mean, I'll give an example. Is it a high, is it a high CapEx business or not? Is it a legal, is legal compliance a big part of the, of the business? We've got a whole bunch of questions like that that are not going to appear in financial statements that are really important to understand in terms of you know the overall risk of the business. So I take those three templates and that's how I decide whether we have a deal. Sometimes I may tell a person, this is financeable, but not at the price or structure that you're thinking of. Um, here's, here's some suggestions of how you could restructure it uh, and make it more financeable. So that's part of the process as well. We have uh, people that are that are in the chat. They're leaving messages. We got Pierre who says uh, that he's excited for the interview. Good to have you here today, Pierre. We also got Victor who's joining us from the UK who just gave us a like. I'll remind everyone else to do exactly like Victor. Give us a big like. And uh, if you have questions uh, for Heather, please put them in the chat. Put the comments in there. We will be getting to them as we as we progress. Um, so, so let's talk about that then, because you you do this analysis at the beginning to f look and see if you think the deal can be done bef before you're willing basically to invest your time, right? Because you invest your time in this, ultimately, uh, and we'll talk about how you get paid later. But can you give us some sort of like a, a top list of some of the issues that come up with uh, with some of your prospective clients that that cause you to to send them back to the drawing board? A lot of times it's the price and structure and how that's affecting the DSCR. That, that's a big one. But the other big one is customer concentration. Uh, these are small companies. It's not unusual for them to have a large client or two, uh, but there comes a point where the concentration is just too big to put financing against it. Uh, you know, I, I always try to explain that in the sense that it might still be a good company if you can keep those customers, but you've got debt that you're putting into the situation now that the seller didn't have. And yeah. a lot of times that's hard for the seller to understand, you know, why is this so bad? Well, you know, they have to make a debt payment. The, the whole business will fold if they lose a customer of a certain size. 
So that's the one that's most common. There's a lot of, unfortunately, kind of not financeable businesses out there because of customer concentration. Um, so you mentioned uh, DSCR and multiple being uh, out of line. Now, mm -hmm. the the amount that someone's willing to pay for a cash flow and the the riskiness or oscillation in that cash flow over time that that you know that's your your riskiness or instability in the cash flow mm -hmm. the the greater that is the more of a debt service coverage ratio you want just to make the lender feel more comfortable these are all related to risk do you think that there may be a misperception out there of just how risky these assets are small businesses i mean you know, uh, if, if you follow me on Twitter or that whole SMB crowd, there's an ongoing debate about, you know, how risky is this? Uh, I personally don't like to debate things without statistics and numbers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, uh, well, let's start with that. Um, the SBA didn't separate acquisition loans out from all the other types of SBA loans, which are usually real estate, they, they're lower risk. You know, SBA real estate loans are lower risk. There was another higher risk, which is SBA startup loans. Those are considered higher risk. Um, and so I guess business acquisitions sort of lie in the middle there, but they didn't separate out those loans from the rest of the data until starting in 2018. So okay. we've only had five, you know, coming up maybe on six years of data um, to even track this. But I did start tracking it because uh, because it is a hot topic. And my personal belief is sort of based on my anecdotal experience, which is if you if done right, this is not that risky. But what does done right mean? You know, I have my opinion uh, and, and other banks do different things. And so, you know, what does that really mean? That's very subjective. So the data uh, is on my website. There is a blog post on my website where I reported the, the default rates for just acquisition loans from 2018 forward, uh, we're about to refresh that data. I work with Lumos data. They got the data from SBA through 9-30-23, uh, which was the end of the fiscal year. They're scrubbing it right now. In the next two weeks, somewhere in there, I will have that data and I will write another uh, post about it, both on Twitter and my blog. Uh, and so I expect it will go up a little bit, but it's still relatively low. It's, you know, it's kind of a 2% all-in rate in the twos is where it has been. Maybe that goes up a little bit because of interest rates. I certainly think that's the reason if we if we do see an increase in that. But overall, still really low. And anecdotally, again, the ones that I know that went bad, most of them, most of them, I would personally attribute to not doing sufficient diligence, hmm. not, do, not either not doing a Q of E at all or kind of missing something rather large um, that, you know, with better diligence probably would have been caught and uh, the deal not done. Uh, I don't see that many where it's something else, you know, like just the business sort of fell apart on them. It does happen, but not that often. So now, so now you're looking at data for SBA loan default rates. And just, just to be clear for everyone, in order to default on an SBA loan, you have to stop paying the thing probably for several months before it even gets reported. Maybe 90 days, mm -hmm. 90 days. So, so that's a really bad scenario. And, and the inverse of that or the converse, you know, the, the other part that fits in with it, I guess, um, I don't necessarily think the other part that fits into that is necessarily small business success. That j just because over the years I've met so many people who uh, have gotten into trouble in a small business, they're struggling, they still manage to make the loan payment, 
but maybe they they're not replacing capital equipment like they should be they're not taking a salary out like they should be <clears throat> you know they're existing and they haven't closed they haven't defaulted but their status is probably not what i would describe as success right yeah. and, and and so there's a uh, sort of a a bunch of gradients here of of outcomes along a, a spectrum yeah. i guess is is the way i like to describe it yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I've certainly known some of those people, uh, you know, uh, throughout their struggles. Um, and, and small business, you know, it, it's all very time dependent, too. So we could talk to someone uh, in a particular year where their industry is challenged or something else has happened mm -hmm. and they're struggling. Like you said, they are not getting paid and themselves personally uh, and they're really struggling, but they are they're not defaulting. But you could talk to that same individual in two or three years and it's completely different. I'm actually working on a deal right now where I financed the seller uh, in 2017 or 18, I think. Uh, COVID was very tough on this business, very tough. I had many difficult conversations uh, with him during that time. And I'm now, he, he referred the buyer back to me because he's selling it now and it's doing great, you know? So, and he's exiting at a nice multiple. And uh, and that's small business to me, like that's that's kind of how it can go. It's not like it's this perfect uh, even when they are successful outcomes. It's not like every year was great for them. Yeah, <laughs> not at all. Yeah, um, we have a question here from someone in the audience. So so Pierre is asking, what are your thoughts on the recently relaxed SBA SOP and its impact on funding startups and early stage business? For example, businesses with less than half a million in revenues. You know, Pierre, I don't, I don't follow the startup side of things very much. I, I apologize for, for that. Uh, I don't know what they've relaxed in terms of startup financing. I will tell you this, back to what we said earlier, lenders have their own criteria. So even though the SOP may allow some more startup financing, when it comes to startups, most of the lenders that I know, they'll do them only if and only when the borrower has enough personal liquidity and assets to kind of make it a no brainer for the bank. You know, they're pledging real estate or they have, you know, a multi-million net worth and, you know, okay, they'll do those. Um, that's been my experience. Outside of that, the only other startups I see get funding not too difficultly is uh, franchises. And then only those concepts that have developed relationships with certain lenders so that the mm. lender gets, you know, really, really comfortable with a particular concept. And then maybe they'll do some startup because they know uh, what a good what a good, uh, you know, territory and person looks like. But startup financing, even regardless of what SB, SOP says, is still it's still pretty tough to come by. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is what brings people into the world of buying businesses when they realize just how right. difficult and risky it can be to start. I, and I know that, um, you know, in general, for a lender to want to lend money to someone who's just getting started, it, it, it comes back to collateral, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. if you if you wanted to buy some pieces of equipment, perhaps that had uh, a market value to them, then maybe you could get finance some percentage of that. But soft things like your initial marketing budget or any of that kind of stuff, I mean, it's money spent with with nothing backing it. It's got to come from from the uh, entrepreneur or in some kind of equity investors, some yeah. people who don't need uh, a payment uh, attached to their investment. Absolutely. And so the way a lender looks at it is th there's two types of you know lending. There's the type they like, which is cash flow lending. 
we've got coverage in a historical period. So even though we're selling the business to a new owner and creating some risk there, there's still a history we can we can pin the loan or you know size the loan to. Projection financing is the other side uh, where there's nothing historically. It's just a business plan and frankly an Excel spreadsheet that everyone knows nothing's going to turn out the, quite the way that Excel spreadsheet says it will. So uh, that's extremely risky for lenders and they they wouldn't they don't want to do that unless they have full collateral coverage. So if the Excel spreadsheet isn't yeah. right, they've got collateral that they can take. We got a, a question in the chat about assumption of SBA loans. Mm -hmm. So uh, Spencer is asking, is it common for searchers to apply to assume their seller's SBA loan, whether a startup or other loan? Uh, not very common. I mean, technically it is within the documents, it's allowed. The reason is you don't see it done very often is there's a little uh, catch. The seller, the existing borrower doesn't get released from liability. They're still on the hook. So, um, and this has come up with these EIDL loans that were done during COVID because they have a very low rate and everybody wants to be able to assume them if they can. Um, I have heard of one story where he says he did assume it, but I always tell everybody, I, I think it's the same answer there. The seller's not going to get released from liability. And if I'm the seller, I wouldn't agree to that. I yeah. wouldn't let you take over my loan that I, my name's still on. Yeah, you know, I think it really comes down to the scenario and situation. So I'll, I'll give you a, a hypothetical, for example. If a business is good and successful and profitable and somebody bought it with an SBA loan mm -hmm. and maybe four or five, six years have gone by, the principal on that loan will have declined, right? Okay. And so if it's equally successful today as it was when it was purchased, um, the price should be the same or higher, mm -hmm. which means, it, you know, the buyer would be able to acquire the business with a far lower down payment if they got their own new financing. Right. So the, the only scenario that I really see often where people are serious about assuming these debts is if the business is not performing well. Mm -hmm. So if profits have gone down, sales have been reduced and the business is not worth a lot more than the balance of that loan, that's when a buyer might say, geez, you know, instead of me going through all the hoops of qualifying for a loan, I'll just take over your loan, you know, and maybe you get little right. to no additional equity for the business because it's gone down in value. And so you hear stories of people doing this, that, you know, someone acquired a business by taking over a loan, but you have to consider that seller's position. If, if things are really bad, and maybe they're thinking that they're going to end up, you know, you know, the business will fail. They'll personally go bankrupt or something like this. That assumption, even with the continued liability, might be the right decision for that person in that right kind of special circumstance. Mm -hmm. And what will happen, though, is that the story will be leaked online. Oh, this person took over a business by assuming a debt. Yeah. And then and then people think somehow this is a solution that could be applied anywhere when really there's a lot of circumstances in that scenario. I mean, very good scenario to point out, right? Like, what would the motivation to do that be? It's usually because they're in a tough spot. Yeah. And if they're in a tough spot, uh, even with that level of debt, you're buying a distressed asset or a distressed company. Uh, and, and that's a totally different ball game, of course, yeah. of risk in terms of, you know, uh, what that's going to be like for you. So, yeah, definitely uh, not something we come across very often that most people are even willing to do. So... So let's talk about appetite from different lenders a little bit again. So mm -hmm. you said that there's about 30 lenders that you deal with uh, frequently that you're keeping mm -hmm. on top of. Um, are you being approached by new lenders all the time who see you as a steady pipeline of, uh, of potential deals? 
And, and is there anything new that you've been approached with as far as uh, lenders that are saying they have an appetite for something different or special? Uh, yeah, well, that was a pleasant surprise for me. Uh, when I imagined what my first couple of months were going to be like starting this business, I thought that I would be reaching out a lot more than I ended up needed to, needing to do. So uh, fortunately, a lot of banks reached out to me then and still reach out to me um, saying, hey, do you already have a contact at our bank? We'd love to, to work with you, which is fantastic. So uh, do they come to me with anything unique? <laughs> Not really. Uh, I So far, so far, I am helping them um, understand some things. So, you know, I, I, I kind of was got a head start, you know, on many of these banks by focusing. That's why I like to point out 12 years ago, I started doing mm. just acquisition loans. None of these other lenders were doing this 12 years ago. So I know I have the most experience, but that, and that's great. That's what I bring to the table for them as well. A lot of times I'm teaching the banks uh, how to work with a Q of E what it really is, and then also like who the right Q of E providers for particular deals really are, that that matters too, you know, the vendor matters. Um, what I find interesting, someone brought it up on Twitter uh, not too long ago, the SBA is very behind in this as well. If you think of it this way, the SBA has got a rule that says you must have a an SBA business valuation and it has to check certain boxes. Um, and frankly, if if you ask me what the value of those is, it's none. It's just, mm -hmm. it, it, they're forward looking. They're super subjective. I mean, they're not, they're just not a lot of value there. But at the same time, if I look at a Q of E in comparison, that's extremely important to a deal, in my opinion. And SBA doesn't even, they're not required at all. So we're, you know, the, yeah. the, the rules are not really caught up here. And so the banks need needed someone to kind of teach them, uh, you know, the, the how to use the Q of E, not just for the EBITDA, but working capital uh, to make sure we have the right working capital peg. There's a lot of, you know, kind of catching up that's going on. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I'm happy to help because I think it's a help not only for my own business and my clients, but to the broader community. I have always been bewildered by the requirement for a business valuation um, and the business valuations that I've seen over the course of the years, uh, because people will show them to me like, the, mm -hmm. you know, the, that they have to get them. So the deal will be done. The deal will be negotiated. You know, your LOI is in place, your financing is in place. And now we're going to go get an evaluation. Mm -hmm. um, I've never seen one at or below the purchase price. <laughs> um, and, and when you stop to think about it, you know, most lenders want you to use one of their approved providers. And so, you know, one of the, one of the basic maxims I always get back to is that, that business is only done between people. Mm -hmm. And so if you're dealing with a loan officer and the loan officer says we need an appraisal and here's a person that does the appraisal. If that person brings in appraisals that are below the purchase price and these loans blow up, that person's not getting any more referrals. Right. Right. And so there's this there's this uh, conflict, I believe, uh, where I the, the, the you know the appraisers that are going to consistently inflate the number are always going to keep getting the referral because then the loan officer always gets to write the loans. And it, it I, th I think the whole idea was it was supposed to give some kind of security or protect maybe a buyer against overpaying. It, it doesn't have that impact at all. Yeah, it does not. It, it does. I agree with you. Um, I, I also, you know, think that um, 
it, it just doesn't have a value at all because really what matters is cash flow coverage. We're talking about a loan here. And really what's more important to the value is whether the EBITDA is correct, right? So the valuation is based on tax return EBITDA, which may not be right. Uh, and, and so I asked one of my Q of E providers that I've done business with for years, I asked him to look back at uh, what's the average change in EBITDA that you've made in all these different deals that you did. And it was 150,000 downward, of course, downward. It almost never goes up, almost never. I have had it a couple, a couple times, but what the, the best, the basic problem is these are small companies who don't have great accounting practices. That's, you know, and the more complex the accounting you know, situation might need to be, the more likely that they're not doing it right. So when a Q of E provider comes in and kind of straightens it out and shows if they had done this correctly, this is what the EBITDA would be, it adjusts it downward. If the valuation company knew that the EBITDA was $150,000 less, I'm sure their valuation would be lower too. <laughs> but they don't even take that into consideration because it's not part of the requirement. So this is where I think... Uh, you have to be careful what the rules aren't don't make a good deal or a bad deal. They're just government rules for the program. Um, just complying with the rules doesn't mean you you're safe. You know, there, there's a lot of things that have nothing to do with the rules, like a QOV that will keep you safe. And the rules of getting a valuation will not keep you safe. Yeah. Um, what you know, I've got an interesting question here again from Pierre. Um, who says, you mentioned working with small business bankers. What has been the experience in working with brokers or possibly you know, buyers and sellers that have no intermediary? Is it, is it make things different for you from an yeah. SBA loan broker point of view? Totally, totally different. Yes. So, you know, many of our buyers out there are going to be doing a combination of broker search and what we'll call proprietary search, where they're picking up, they're dialing, you know, they're, they're using lists and mailing lists and whatnot, and trying to find a deal without a broker. So we do um, get, we do work with both. Those without a broker are going to take longer. You, you just almost always know that they're going to take longer because the, the, the seller doesn't have somebody in their corner uh, to push it along or to say, no, this is customary or this is normal. Uh, there's there's that problem. And the second problem that makes it really problematic is they they're more broken deals where the seller just cold feet says, I'm not selling. Uh, you know, I just talked to my client uh, that had a really terrible situation like that. He worked on the deal for probably nine months, was all the way into closing and the seller did that. Uh, yeah. And it was proprietary, no broker. And it worried me about that deal all the way through. There's a third piece to uh, these non-broker deals, and that is often bad counsel. They will, because they don't have a broker saying, well, you should use the right kind of counsel for this. They will hire anybody that's their friend from the country club that does not specialize in M&A. And of course, the lawyer is not going to say no to the engagement. They take it on and say they can do it. And it's it's usually a really big disaster. <laughs> yeah, the, the, you know, the one big thing that a business owner is transmitting when they go and hire a business broker to help them sell the business is they're actually transmitting the fact that they want to sell. I mean, yeah. um, it, especially if it's a broker that has any kind of engagement fee, like any kind of upfront fee for, yeah. for taking on the file. Um, I mean, when I work with buyers, it's one of the questions that I'll get them to ask business brokers is just say, hey, you know, for people that want to sell their business, do they have to pay you some kind of fee to start this process? 
Because if they do, then that that's a very clear signal. Yes, this person really does want to sell their business or needs to sell the business because they're committing to this path. They're doing this work before meeting you and they've opened their wallet, which of course is the biggest indicator of, of commitment there is. Um, speaking of wallets, uh, how, how do we fill yours? So I want to ask, how do you get paid? Do you charge people uh, who come to you for help to buy a business? Uh, no, this is the beauty of this model and why ultimately I made the decision to leap out of the bank and, and, and do it. Um, the banks pay the fee for Viso and they pay it at closing and it's at the bank's expense. It is not something that you'll see in your closing costs that you're ultimately paying at all. It's at the bank's expense. And the reason I, I love this part of the story, the reason that exists and, you know, that made it so easy for me to start this business is because of business brokers putting their hand out to get paid for the names of the buyers. They've been doing it for years. It drives me crazy. I never liked it as a banker. I never paid brokers that way because I felt it was a conflict of interest. There's another one, you know, kind of like- Sorry, can we visit that just for a minute? So you're saying business brokers would refer buyers to banks in exchange for some kind of a fee? Okay, Correct. They still do it to this day. Okay. Uh, it is how banks are kind of lazy about marketing. Bankers can be lazy about marketing. I, I say that as a recovering banker. I wasn't, but they, they, a lot of my, uh, my colleagues were. And so it was easier to just get to know the brokers and say, broker, when you get a deal under LOI, just give me the name of the buyer. You don't have to do anything. I'll pay you a point at closing for that. So the banks fell into this habit of doing that and the brokers fell into the habit of demanding it. Um, and I didn't like it as a as a lender because I saw what happened in the abuse of that relationship. So just like we were talking about the appraiser and the banker and the appraiser is not going to come in low because he'll never get any more business. The problem with the broker and the lender uh, and, the, and the lender being dependent on that broker for business is the broker abused it often, often abused it. They got confidential information about the buyer. They manipulated the lender into, um, you know, pushing the buyer for their timing for things that were, you know, really on the other side of the deal. Uh, they talked the borrower, the lender, into accepting certain risks that maybe they shouldn't have. Um, it, it just got abused. It, and I and I have worse stories than this. I I, I, just, I won't go into them, but uh, I really really dislike that. So when I was at Live Oak, I only I went for the buyer direct channel which is another reason why I was able to, you know, have this business is because I spent my time developing, a, a you know, an audience of, mm -hmm. of business buyers. So uh, anyway, those bro brokers still get paid today that way. I highly recommend buyers do not go where the broker tells you to go, not because I don't want them to get a point, but because of that conflict of interest and the risk that it could pose to you. I don't, you know, it's impossible to know which brokers are going to abuse it and which ones are not. So just stay away from it is my advice. Um, go pick your own broker, loan broker or lender, but don't go where the other side of the transaction, the seller's uh, representative is telling you to go because that does have a lot of risk. Mm -hmm. But anyway, long story is the way of saying because the, the banks got used to expensing that fee and they built it into their cost model on SBA loans, they're able to pay me the same fee. I don't have a conflict of interest with the bar, with the buyers. And um, I do a lot more work. I put a full data room together. So the banks are actually happier uh, to, to get, you know, to pay me my fee than they are, you know, paying the broker for just a name. 
And so it, it reminds me of almost, um, you know, like home mortgage brokerage where, mm-hmm. you know, they advertise, come in, we'll help you find a, a mortgage. There's no fee. They're, they're being paid by the lender as well. Right. And, and so obviously you have an interest in the deals closing. And this is why you have that hurdle up front where you don't want to spend your time working on one that you don't right. think can close because then you, you realize you're going to end up wasting that time you've invested. Yeah, it's like I'm taking them on contingency, right? The, the yeah. same concept. A, a lawyer would on contingency is not going to take a case they don't think they can win. Uh, so there's that assurance. The same thing with a, with a broker, an insurance broker, a loan broker, a mortgage broker. Uh, we're not going to take on transactions that we don't think we can get to, across the finish line. So that, I think that's a, that's a help. It's a, it's a signal uh, to you, the buyer, that um, it, it's, it's going to get done. A lender, on the other hand, sometimes does take in deals to their pipeline uh, at their bank that they aren't going to get done. Why do they do this? And this is another thing I'm going to, you know, I try to save my clients from this experience. There's a lot of, they're in sales. There's a lot of bankers they are in sales. They've got a pipeline. They've got a quota, if you will. And maybe you're talking to somebody who's not doing that well. They're not the top producer. They're on the bubble, maybe. It makes them look better to have this pipeline of deals that ultimately get over to credit and credit declines them because it doesn't meet the criteria. But they say, well, I brought in all this business, you know, so you get kind of caught up in this sort of internal politic game that you don't even know about. Uh, so some sometimes lenders will and they're getting a salary. So they're looking busy, <laughs> uh, but they're wasting your time. Yeah. Yeah. It, um... Yeah, I remember. I remember the first time I realized that bankers are not what we think of as bankers. We we think of the you know the guy from the monopoly, the monopoly man, right, with the top hat or whatever. And um, and the reality is is that they're the person you meet when you go to the bank is not making a lending decision. That's that's an underwriter. It's a whole other place, and they've they've been careful to separate these two functions because one is about getting business, the other is about protecting the the bank's long term interests. Right. And and so the bankers that people meet are are salespeople. They're they're mm-hmm. trying to bring in those files, and 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 like you said, they often have uh, bonus structures, maybe based on lending so many millions of dollars or, or something of that nature. Uh, you know, again, back to that people do business with people kind of thing. Um, I've, I've coached people to kind of take advantage of this, to develop relationships with, with people in the lending industry, because if you can get some advice or coaching about what might be doable or not in a deal, it can give you some guidance about what you're trying to do. And I guess you, you're providing that to people too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All the time. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, l- listen, we're, we're up here at the, it's been about an hour, so we need to wind things up. Where can people find you online if they're interested in speaking with you, Heather, or learning anything more? Or you mentioned blog posts and things. You must have other resources people can take advantage of. Absolutely. So please come to my website. That is uh, visocap.net, V-I-S-O-C-A-P.net. That's where my blog post is. You can actually, there's buttons on there to get my Twitter, my LinkedIn, everything there, uh, as well as kind of just, you know, leave me a message if you'd like to to get together. There's also my Zoom session uh, button there. So you can pretty much get everything at my website, but you can also follow me on Twitter. I use my real name. I'm not a SBA loan lady or whatever. (laughs) The anonymous accounts. uh, I'm pretty active on there. uh, And of course, on LinkedIn as well. Awesome. So what I'll do is I'll update the notes uh, on YouTube and for the um, 
for the audio podcast for people that are listening to the audio later. And I'll include those three uh, links in the notes so people can find you easily. And I want to say a big thank you for, for coming in. And it's great to see you again here today. Heather was a guest speaker in the Business Buyer Advantage Group coaching program. Um, and her recording was released just recently. And I invited her over to the main YouTube channel to talk with all of you. So uh, thank you very much. It's great to see thank you again. You, David. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Go over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me and how I work with my clients. You can learn more about my books and courses that I've prepared for you. You can find out how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, and more. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there, all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Special thanks go to Mark Willis at Lake Growth Financial, today's video sponsor. Mark helps people better manage their personal and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and I've seen others use it successfully for years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find all the interviews I've done with Mark and learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up for a free consultation to learn what this solution might look like for you.